0: Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Let's pray. Living God, we would behold you now. And in our weakness, this is a sight that we couldn't bear. We're like Joshua's trumpets at Jericho. We're like Gideon's little clay pots holding a light. We're like David's little stones in the Valley of Elah. We are weak, but our God is mighty and strong. And so in this moment, we would ask you to display your mighty power. We have heard of your mighty power even in Ella's testimony. We've heard of your mighty power in the the, uh, calling of the Markowskis to go to Papua New Guinea. Take the name of Jesus to a place that he has not yet been named in a language he hasn't yet been named. And we would now behold your power in the preaching of your word. We are weak. You are strong. We are attempting great things to know you and to be changed by you. And we're attempting these things in the conscious awareness that we are weak. But you have promised to give us the strength that we need through your spirit and through your word. So we invite you to come now and do this in our lives for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Let's read together from Isaiah chapter 40. The song that we just sang was lifted from Isaiah chapter 40. And as we prepare to read from Isaiah 40, I'll just prepare you what to, what to look for or what to listen for as we read this chapter. It's one of the greatest chapters in the whole of the Bible. And I want to Maybe show you a couple of things to look for as we go through it. As we go through it, uh, I want you to find the core core question in this whole chapter. And you'll find it in verse 18. You'll find the core question in verse 18. This one unanswerable question. And then I'd also challenge you to find really the singular command in this entire chapter is there in verse 9. And it's the last three words of verse 9, behold, you're God. And as we read this chapter, I'd, I'd ask you to have an eye to scan for the attributes of God. God's eternal truthfulness, or we call it his veracity, that he's utterly and completely trustworthy. You'll see that in verse 8, that his word never fails. And then something about the goodness and the generosity of God. You know, the Bible says if you're going to come to God, you have to not only believe that he exists, but you have to believe that he rewards those who seek him. And you'll see that, his, his generosity and his goodness, and you'll see that in verse 10, that he brings his reward with him every time he comes. And something else about this great God who holds the oceans in the hollow of his hand is that he's compassionate toward us. And you'll see his attribute of mercy and compassion in verse 11 when he's compared to a tender shepherd you'll see his uh, omnipotence and his omnipresence and his immensity in verse 12 and the comparisons that you see there in verse 12 you'll see his wisdom his omniscience in verses 13 and 14 when we say who could teach him anything and then you'll see that he's sovereign over every other ruler in verse 17 So we see together in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And all are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. We'll end our reading there. If you were here last week, we covered verses 1 through 11. Our intention this week is to cover verse 12 down through about verse 20. Our text begins with that wonderful uh, repetition, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah was looking ahead to the time of the Babylonian captivity, which was just about the worst thing that would happen to God's people. And Isaiah is writing to give comfort to a group of people who lost everything they loved and whose lives seemed like they would never be as good as they were before. And he's writing to give them comfort. It was interesting this morning, if you were here at the beginning of the service to hear the testimony from Ella, she talked in her testimony about, this is a similar theme in many testimonies. Um, Everything falls apart. You feel depressed. You feel like there's no way out. And it's at that moment when you need comfort, when you need an answer, that you realize all the comforts to which you have been looking. they are just so many cobwebs. The comforts that this world offers are all froth, no substance. The comforts that this world offer, they help us just about as long as a sandcastle does until high tide comes in. You know, the only comfort that isn't cheap, that isn't temporary, that isn't, that isn't grounded in a sandcastle is the comfort that comes from reality. And what Isaiah 40 is saying is God is reality. He's the only one who can actually comfort you with the comfort that you need. The comfort has to come not from a fantasy, not from a substitute, but from the reality of who God is. And that's why the big command in Isaiah 40 is in verse 9, Behold your God. And that's why the the, really the core of Isaiah chapter 40 is verse 18, which asks an unanswerable question. To whom will you liken God? To what? will you compare reality? Uh, what's the analogy for reality? He's God. And we're given in verse 12 uh, four human measures to consider. When, uh, when Jesus taught, uh, he, he always used little earthly things Actually, tell you the truth. Like uh, ten minutes before the service started, I was walking down the hallway and I was talking to a gentleman who's going to teach to the kids this morning, and he's going to teach the children for his very—it's his very first time doing it—and he confessed to me, "I'm kind of nervous." And so I put my arm around him, and I prayed with him, and I said, "You know, just remember, every time Jesus taught, he talked about dirt, birds." like, you know, uh, apples, a lady who didn't have a lot of money and she lost her money, little little things that, that we could see and understand, and then Jesus folded in alongside of them the truths of the kingdom of God, which are seemingly impossible for us to understand. Isaiah, in seeking to show us who God is, he starts in verse 12 with these two little things that you can actually do if by God's grace the five fingers on your hand still work. He says that God measures the waters in the hollow of his hand. The hollow of your hand is just how you would cup water if you were camping and you didn't have a vessel and you just had to get some water, to, you know, to drink. And then the span is the length from the Tip of the thumb to the tip of the pinky finger. And then he uses two very common uh, measurements that everybody would have had in their house. Who's measured the water in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, that's a little basket, and then weighed the mountains in scales, in a balance. Everybody would have had this little measure of a basket, and everybody would have had a scale and they would have used it in the marketplace. Small, everyday measurements. But watch what God encompasses by his equivalencies in these measurements. The span of a hand is all of the water in all of the oceans on the globe. And not just the top part of the water, but all the water way down to the depths of the Mariana Trench. All of the water in the, in the hollow of his hand. And his span, what does that measure? All the galaxies. The mountains and the hills. These equivalencies are meant to show us how small we are and how big God is. They're meant to show us the vastness of God's power because, because... This is what happened to Israel, and even if I don't know you that well, I know this is what happens to you because this is what happens to me, and I'm supposedly your leader, and it happens to me all the time. Something doesn't go the way I want it to go, and then I'm like, oh, God, aren't you you smart enough to figure this out? God, aren't you strong enough to handle this? I've prayed about this for like eight minutes already. Aren't you big enough to take care of it? This is the way that that Israel was going through this captivity and Isaiah meant to show them God is wise enough and powerful enough to do everything that God wills to do in your life. Captivity or no. Answer to prayer, yes, or answer to prayer, no. It is not an issue of God's power. It's an issue of God's will. Isaiah means to hammer home the message of God's power in creation, to hammer out of our lives any doubt that God's wisdom or God's power is lacking even in our worst circumstances. And Isaiah uses the power of God in creation, the measurement of God beyond all human measurement, so off the scale of our reckoning, to correct this common problem that we have where we question his power or we question his goodness or we question his wisdom. Isaiah uses the biggest things on the planet and the smallest human measurements on the planet. So this is what he means to show us. What you see as massive, God sees as minuscule. What you see as daunting and insurmountable, God sees as nothing and insignificant. What you see as an immovable obstacle, God sees as little Legos that the uh, Markowski's little boys could play with all day long. Those boys were cute, but they ain't really strong. Those little, those, those little arms they have, you know, about, about, about like a piece of linguine. But they can move around those Legos and build anything they want with them. Isaiah is saying, think of the mountains. That's that's what they are to God. They're They're two Lego pieces. God as creator. This is so foundational. It's been said many times, but it has been said many times because it's true. Genesis is in the first place in the Bible for a reason. The doctrine of creation is not unimportant. A confessing Christian does not have a multiple choice between evolution, billions of years, chance, or maybe God did something special. This, this, is, this, is not a, this is not an option for a confessing, believing Christian. God creating the world intentionally out of his design and out of his power is the foundation of so much of what we believe. And if creation came about because of a sovereign act of God's creative will, then the meaning of creation can only be found in relation to its creator. And every day, morning, noon, and night, we see another news story about imbeciles in control of everything who are trying to figure out creation with no reference to the creator and it'll never work, it'll never work. Creation came about because of a sovereign act of God's creative will. Therefore, the meaning of creation and the telos of creation and the way creation is supposed to work will only be discerned by rightly relating to the creator. Doctrine of creation is so important. Surely, I am not the only Christian here who has had the privilege. Have you ever done this? Of being at like a beautiful place, you know Grand Canyon or the, the Pacific Ocean and sunset, that crimson and gold sky, up north in Wisconsin to see to see the beauty of creation, whatever it is, see a bald eagle cut down toward a river, surely i 'm not the only one who's had the the great um, sort of fun uh, poke somebody in the eye kind of joy of being in a position where I'm at a place like that with somebody who's not a believer. Maybe they're an atheist. And, you get, and I get to say something like, look at this that we're seeing. What kind of artist came up with this? Where did it come from? Something so beautiful. Where could it possibly have come from? I know it didn't come from nothing. I know it didn't come from a couple of molecules of mud that became a lizard, that became you. I don't know, I, don't, I honestly don't know how atheists feel because I've never been one, <laughs> but I, I, I have a good guess that atheists are often filled with angst. You know what angst is? Angst is, a. Uh, angst. the reason it's called angst is because it's a feeling of dread that doesn't have an exact direction. It's just this, this hollow, foggy dread of anxiety that isn't specified about one thing. It's angst because it's deep, but it's not directed, and it's pervasive. And I, if I could make a guess, I would say the atheist is at his or her angstiest when when uh, they, not when they see something bad, but when they see something good. They see creation in all of its beauty and they don't have anyone to thank. You know, every human heart uh, converges to rise up and say, wow, that's how God made us. And, but, and, and he made us to rise up and say that to him and about him. And when you can't do that, where do you go with that? Well, you suppress it. You turn to an idol, verse 19. I mean, after the unanswerable question in verse 18, we go right to idols. But uh, how different from a Christian who, when, when he or she sees Creation and sees something beautiful. We know who to thank for it. We know where our joy should be directed. C.S. Lewis, we follow the sunbeam back to the sun and we bask in the beauty and the heat and the glory of our all consuming God. From creation, from before eternity, we see that God designed creation and I think that's behind verse 13 and 14 about the questions like who measured the spirit of the Lord or what man showed him his counsel whom did he consult or who made him understand who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge or showed him the way of understanding when God created God alone saw to the heart of things in his creation. God alone made the correct decisions about his creation because he didn't have to ask anyone for advice because there was no one to ask. No one could advise him. Likewise for his administration of our affairs. He doesn't doesn't have to ask anyone for counsel. God has never Googled anything I was at lunch with a member of our pastoral staff just a couple days ago. We were arguing about something. So he pulls out his phone. I'll show you what it really is, right? Like we we Google everything that we argue with everyone about. Not God. Not God. Verse 13 implies that we question God, that we want to give God counsel. Talk to you about that. That's uh, kind of a bad idea. Verse 15, verse 15 implies that when we see the nations lined up, we grow fearful, we grow anxious. When God sees the nations lined up, he sees them like less than a drop from a bucket. And after all, he's the one who holds all the oceans in the hollow of his hand. When we see the nations lined up against us, we freak out. That was Israel's problem the day that Isaiah wrote this. It's still our problem, not in the sense that the Chaldeans and the Babylonians are lining against us, but it still is our problem in that some of you, uh, you run around like like if the wrong politician gets elected, God's going to get bumped off of his throne. It's not going to happen is not going to happen. I, 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 I would encourage, no, I, not I would, I do encourage every Christian believer to vote in every election and to have your vote accord with your biblical morality. This is, this is, a, this is a wise thing to do. It's a, it's a good stewardship of, of the vote that you've been given in our country. But uh, at the same time, We can't believe in the God of Isaiah 40 and then freak out if our guy loses power and somebody else gets it or take it off of the political scale uh, in the workplace. If your boss is doing everything wrong and your boss is setting everything up in a way that's not going to work for you, well... Maybe you, maybe there's recourse you can take and find another job or do something about it. But the last thing to do is to grow so fearful and so freaked out that you can't trust God with your circumstances. If we think that God is limited by the problems that scare us, we don't know God. That's what Isaiah is getting at in verse fifteen. Isaiah, or, I'm sorry, Israel was scared of the nations around her, and Israel was thinking that God was limited by the problems that scared her. That's why he makes such a big deal about the nations. If we think that God's limited by the problems that scare us, we have no vision of who God really is, and we have this wonker-jawed view of the problems, which are really less than a drop in the bucket. According to verse 13... I think verse 13, that's one of my favorite verses because it asks a killer question about questions. Verse 13 says, basically, who has the right to ask God a question? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows God his counsel? Would we question God? The word for that, I suppose, is uh, insolence insolence? Would a three-year-old tell her mommy how to run life? Well I suppose three-year-olds do that all the time but that's not a point in favor of the respectability and the godliness of three-year-olds. That's a point proving the insolence of three-year-olds. Would a creature question the creator? The other word for that would be hubris. To be filled to the brim with hubris would be to to tell God a better way of doing things. I lifted that word insolence actually from John Calvin's comment on verse 13. Just read you a little part of it because I I like it. It has some spicy sauce in it. John Calvin says of verse 13, um, Isaiah rebukes us for we only see things by carnal sight. And so we wickedly limit the power of God to human means and we wickedly subject God's inscrutable counsel to our pitiful human reasoning. And then like a good pastor, he says this, cease such behavior and instead contrast, contrast congregation, contrast the power of God with your weakness so that your insolence is continually repressed by the goodness and incomparable wisdom of your God. That's good counsel. That's good counsel. And yet I, I know that it's good counsel that you ignore all the time because it's good counsel that I ignore. And I'm supposed to like be leading you in how to live the right way, and I struggle with this myself. I am, I am so good at telling God what he should do. I'm so good at giving God advice all the time, but it's, it doesn't do any good. Because of God's omniscience, I'm not going to inform him about anything he doesn't know. And because of God's eternal fullness... Because of God's eternal fullness, uh, it's actually literally impossible for me to add something to the equation. It is. I'm never going to instruct God. I'm never going to inform him of something he doesn't know. So, those of you who kind of have this sort of cheeky, anti reform theology bent and you're like, so then, why do you pray about anything? I don't know, you got me, I quit. No, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up that easy. (laughs) I'll take you on. (laughs) Well, why do I pray about anything? I don't know, but I know that there are two parties in prayer, God and me. And (laughs) if it is the case that I don't have any sort of guarantee that all of my prayers are going to change God, there is still one party who can be impacted and affected by my prayers and that would be me when i pray i learn how to live coram deo when i pray i learn how to live i learn how to live like somebody who's not an orphan this is not some weird calvinistic argument this is like how i cling to my father so that i can go to sleep at night i'm not an orphan I'm not cold. I'm not alone. I'm not broke. I've got a dad, and he loves me, and he's promised to take care of me. That's why I pray, and every time I pray with faith, I am re-cemented into that loving relationship with him. I, I'm not... I, I suppose if, if he worked on me enough to sweeten me and make me enough like Jesus... Maybe a bigger part of my prayers wouldn't be trying to bend God to my will, but would just be resting, resting in the arms of my Father. When I pray, I learn that everything I long for and everything I need is only found in one place. That's the God who is so marvelously described in Isaiah 40 to summarize all the questions in verses 13 and 14 and 15. He's just saying, don't take a human standard and hold God up to it. Don't take your idea of how things ought to be done and then give God advice based on it. We struggle with that. And we often wonder, like, like Israel would have wondered during the Babylonian captivity, why, why, why? Why did God allow this? Why didn't God do this a better way? I've I've been asked why by not just a few of you. We've had long conversations about why is God doing this with tears in your eyes and sometimes my, my tears have joined with yours just in human compassion as we pray. And I've been asked that why question enough to as a minister have become comfortable giving a clear answer which is um, I don't know why but I know who. I know who God is. That has to be enough. I can't tell you why but I can tell you who God is. And if we know who God is, I can rest the why in his wisdom, which is beyond mine. And I can rest the why in his purpose, which is currently beyond my ability to see. Because I'm the three-year-old in the equation. And he's the all-powerful God. I don't know why, but I know that he's God and I know that he can trust him, that I know that I can trust him. The next time you ask why, remember um it's a I've never heard it sung but there's an old hymn if you want to look it up it's titled by the first line which is it's a good first line when my dim reason when my dim reason the next time you want to ask why remember this when my dim reason would demand why this or that thou dost ordain By some vast deep I seem to stand, whose secrets I must ask in vain. When doubts disturb my troubled breast, and all is dark as night to me, here on this solid rock I rest, that so it seemeth good to thee. To thee. To thee. I don't know why but I know that if in this moment of my life this is your goodwill for me, I can trust you because you're God. I can trust you because, verse 8, your word stands forever. I can trust you because, verse 9, when I behold you, I, that then fear dissipates into joyful confidence. And moving along through our text, verse 15, the nations are a drop in the bucket. And then... Verse 16 is quite the image. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. The cedars of Lebanon, the trees, this this was the the place of, of famous forests. And it says all of those forests ablaze wouldn't be sufficient because all the nations are nothing before him. It reminds me, if you want to look one place in the Psalms, it reminds me of Psalm 50, where God asks a question that's that's kind of a. I think God's almost laughing when He asks the question that He asks in Psalm 50, because in Psalm 50 is when God says, "Hey, He's like, uh, if I needed a snack, would I be asking you to fix it for me?" That's what God asks in Psalm 50. Psalm 50, verse 10. "'Every beast of the forest is mine "'and the cattle on a thousand hills. "'I know all the birds of the hills "'and all that moves in the field is mine.'" Verse 12, "'If I were hungry, "'I wouldn't tell you, "'for the world and all its fullness are mine. "'Do I eat the flesh of bulls "'or drink the blood of goats?' Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. What a great little verse. This is where we get that phrase, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God's like, everything in the world is mine. Every, every uh, one, of, one of my favorite animals, that, that snow eagle white and silver and she can hear the vole like under two feet of snow she can hear that little rodent burrowing and she and she flies down with her razor sharp talons she just reaches in there and grabs that thing the bald eagle in the 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 streams of Washington and Montana just 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 soaring down and grabbing that fish every pride of lions like we saw in Kenya when we visited the Kamungis. When I was, I was, I worked on this sermon at home on Wednesday. It was like 10.30, 11 a.m. I was by myself in the house and I'm working on Isaiah 50 and I'm working on Isaiah 40 and Psalm 50 and I hear this bang, bang, bang on the, on the side of my house. There's no door over there. I'm like, what is going on over there? So I, I walked outside, and here's a, there's a woodpecker just going to town on the wooden paneling on the side of my house. These, these, those deep, deep black feathers, and then the white ones, and then that just shocking scarlet top. And he just bang, 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 trying to put something in there. And I thought, every woodpecker that's ever hidden anything in any hole, in any, like, God... God, has, God knows where all of it is, and he has all of it. And God, God asks in Psalm 50, he's like, if I had a need, would I ask you to meet it? If I had a need, would I ask you to meet it? And the if, the if is an if of impossibility. It's an if of impossibility because of, in, technically we would call God's aseity, God's self-existence and self-sufficiency. It is impossible for God to have a need because he's God within his own triune life. He has more joy and more love than anyone could ever imagine. And he has no need. And it's sort of, it's sort of impossible for us to talk about how infinite and self-sufficient God is. I dropped in the bulletin notes that little quote from uh, my favorite book on the attributes of God is The Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock, but that, that's like a 1,400-page book of small print. It's not for everyone. My favorite recent like actually readable book on the attributes of God is by this guy, uh, Matthew Barrett. Uh, It's called None Greater. And he says this, if we can think of anything that would limit God, then it can't, it literally can't be true of God. Yet infinitude does not mean, does not merely mean rejecting a quality that would limit God. It also means that God in his perfections is his perfections in infinite measure. So God's power is infinite. God's wisdom is infinite. No matter what perfection we describe, it's infinite in God. But notice that even our language here, infinite measure, defies itself. For something that is infinite has no measure. So even our attempts to describe an infinite God in our language are trapped by the finitude of our grammar. We just can't get at it. We just can't get at it because he's God. This shouldn't surprise us that we can't get at it because we're trying to describe God. It should be beyond our abilities of description. So are you understanding why I call verse 18 of Isaiah 40 the unanswerable question? To whom then will you liken God? What likeness will you compare him to? And don't miss the hint in verses uh, 16 and 17 of Isaiah 40 of the burnt offering. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the trees in all of the forests wouldn't be enough to light the fire that would, ma- that would burn the right sacrifice uh, to God? It wouldn't be enough? I wonder if Isaiah, in his almost inscrutable beauty of, his, of the symphony that he's writing here, I wonder if his pen is, as he writes that, thinking of what he's going to write in Isaiah 53, that though all of the trees in all of the world wouldn't suffice for a burnt offering. There is one. There is one and only one who would suffice. That's why all the blood of bulls and goats on all the altars slain could never give the conscience ease or take away sin's stain. Only the Son of God, the suffering servant, the Son of Man, crushed in our place. All the nations are as nothing before Him. They're accounted by Him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Surely not an idol. We have to find salvation in God and in God alone. And so, church, I would call you to that single command in verse 9 to behold your God, and I'd call you to quit answering the unanswerable question of verse 18, to whom will you liken God? And I would ask you to just, just open your heart to God's glory. You know, for the believer, God's glory is beautiful. For the believer, When we behold God's glory like we do here in Isaiah 40, our heart sings and everything falls into place. But did you know that for the unbeliever, for the unbeliever, God's glory is like a problem and a threat. Unbelievers see God's glory like this. Here's the pile of stuff that's going to make me happy. And if God gets glory... God's going to reach his hands into the pile of stuff that's currently making me happy and he's going to take it away to give him glory. That's how unbelievers see the glory of God. Now, watch church. Watch church. Every time you choose to sin, that's how you see God's glory. It's true. Like, here's the stuff I want to do and if God's going to be God and I'm going to follow God's rules, he's going to reach his hand down and take stuff off the pile that's making me happy and shove it to his. To believe God, to walk by faith is to begin to think and feel and reason and volitionally to act in this way. If I would pursue God's glory, that would be the best thing that I could ever do for myself, for my family, for my neighbors, for my happiness, for my eternal joy. This is why God is beautiful to those who believe in him and why his glory is desirable to those who believe in him because perhaps one of the most miraculous things about our God is we can say this, our God is not a taker. Our God is a giver. God asked the question, if I did need anything, would I ask for it from you? This, this, this is the best news about God. We couldn't give him anything he needs anyway. But in his love, in his love, God gives us life. And then God gives us salvation. And then God gives us the third use of the law, that, 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 that if we walk in the way of his commandments, we have joy and we have peace and we have prosperity. And the way you always end a sermon, at least how they taught me to end a sermon in school, was to ask so what and to give an application. And today I say, no, I ain't doing it. Because uh, I just think our Bible teaching becomes, well, everything, everything these days becomes so therapeutic, becomes so Western, becomes so psychological, so me-centered. One time in class, somebody asked my theology professor, like, they were like, we were talking about the Trinity or something. He was like, okay, somebody raised their hand like, could you give us some, some practical reasons why we need to know this? To which my professor answered, no! (laughs) And he said this, if I were to do that, I would be lowering my discourse because to provide you with reasons less than God for why you should know God would be wrong for me to do. See? To provide you with a reason other than God for why you should honor God would, would lower the whole thing. And I refuse to do that because He's God. I just, perhaps the only way to describe it is like when you, we saw the Markowskis up here on the platform and they're cute little boys. I was at a picnic yesterday and I played cornhole with those little guys and then they ran and got, they ran and got literally a, a hand full of nasty bugs and then they brought it and gave it to me. I was like, thanks. <laughs> Cute little guys. Um, but if those, th- those little ones, if we were to get together with them and, and say, uh, why should you love your mom and dad? or if I was to get together with Adam and Kim and try to explain to them, why should you love your sons? I could look up some Washington, D.C. think-take and find some economic or sociological reason why it's good for families to stay together, but that would be to lower the whole thing. Kids, you love her because she's your mom. You love him because he's your dad. And the mom and dad love their kids because they're ours. (laughs) Why do we love God? Because he's God. And he has made a covenant with us where we can say he's ours. And he says that we're his. So church, just behold God and love him. The application point is this. Just be little and be okay with that. Let him be big. Quit pushing and pulling and struggling and prodding to iron everything out the way you want it. And just say, God's irresistible. God's will is going to be done. And I can trust him because he's good. Just be little and love him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, hear your little lambs as we pray to you. What we know and understand not, show us and teach us. And what we are not yet, by your Spirit's work within us, transform us, that we might be changed. And living God, we would bow in humility before you. And we would rejoice that you are our God. In Jesus' name, amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.